0: Great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show. Our mission is to serve you with advice and information that empowers you so you make better financial decisions in your life. Gosh, we've been getting the most travel questions we've seen in years. People are really, really traveling. And an interesting thing, the cruise industry is having the strongest bookings this year apparently, in the history of cruises since the Love Boat TV show of many, many decades ago. So the cost of cruise is up. The benefit of buying trip coverage from the cruise line, well, it's a disaster. I want to talk about that. Special warning for you if you are booking a cruise. I also have a follow-up on vanilla gift cards, and let me tell you, they are not plain vanilla. They are a disaster, and the Visa gift cards known as vanillas have led directly to what's known as the draining scams that I've talked about before. You end up with useless plastic again and again. I'm going to tell you how to protect your wallet later in today's podcast. But right now, gosh, this sounds so negative, talking about people who in good faith buy Visa gift cards, they end up worthless. Now I'm going to talk about in good faith buying cruise coverage from the cruise line itself and it being worthless story after story after story in travel blogs, even one that hit the mainstream press recently in the New York Times about people who buy Trip coverage from the cruise line, peace of mind coverage, and then the cruise lines won't pay, won't make the refunds, and come up with no excuse, not even every excuse, just put you on ignore and run off with your money, and the ship sails without you. One of the most abusive things the cruise industry is doing is if you buy your airfare from them, and they tell you, you know, you... Book the cruise, then buy your airfare from them, usually an inflated price, you buy the airfare, and then something goes wrong with the flight, and you don't make it in time for the cruise, supposedly, you're supposed to be ship shape safe, say that three times. And normally what they do is say, ah, well, you lost that part of the cruise, but we'll fly to the next port, and you get on the cruise late, and la-di-da-di-da, and then they don't do that over and over again, people end up losing the whole cruise, losing all their money, having bought the fake junk pretend insurance from the cruise line. So here are my rules for a cruise. The airline industry has had a a much higher cancel rate of flights than they have historically. It's been better over the last six months, but still higher than normal. So I want you to build a buffer in where you get to wherever you're going on the cruise domestic one full day early so that you don't have to risk and sweat that whether you book your own air, you book the cruise lines air, whatever, you don't sweat that that ship is going out without you. International, two days before. Two days. So what? What? You get to spend a couple of days in Greece or Italy or whatever before you go on the sailing so that you're there before the ship leaves. Really, really important. The next thing though is the most important. Don't ever fall for the con of pretend cruise coverage pseudo insurance from the cruise line. Buy an independent, trip insurance policy and make sure it covers the eventual circumstances that you're worried about. So, uh, as you might imagine, a lot of people who've had cruises booked in the Middle East have not felt comfortable going. So, the cruise lines in their brochures say, hey, tough. (laughs) We have the right to change whatever. And so, you have paid for this Again, in good faith, intending to go to wherever you're going to go. And either it's not safe or the cruise line completely changes the itinerary of the cruise, which defeats the whole purpose of what you were trying to do. So, when you buy trip insurance for a cruise, also could apply to expensive tours that you lose your money if you don't go. Buy trip insurance that includes cancel for any reason. Coverage. It's additional. And it's not going to give you back 100% of your money, but usually will be 50, 60, 75, or 80% of the money, depending on what level of coverage you buy. Where you can say, well, they're not doing this, they're not doing that, or this happened, and I'm not going to go. At least you get back the lion's share of your money. But by independent policies, you know, there are some big. Websites where you can see policies from many different companies, read the terms of what's important to you. What is a covered event under that policy? And compare one to another, to another, to another. Ensure my trip is the biggest, but there are others. Shop around. But remember the rule. Do not buy fake trip pretend insurance from the cruise line. How do you think I feel about cruise coverage?
1: I think you're very clear on that. Okay. For good reason. All right. A couple of travel questions and then also a retirement question in this segment. Tim in California says, I know Clark likes to travel and usually bases his travel on where he finds the deal, but how does he decide what is first among the deals? Cheap airfare, cheap lodging, a combination, or what is it that makes him pull the trigger? Also, has he ever taken a trip to Hungary, and when is the best time to visit Hungary as far as airfare and places to stay, and would he do a river cruise in Hungary, and what is not to be missed?
0: Okay, so let me do this in reverse order. Yes, I've been to Hungary, and um, the cheapest time to go anywhere in Central and Eastern Europe is in the cold weather season, and you just got to bundle up. It is a fraction of the cost going November 1st to February 28th, much, much cheaper, shorter days, you know, don't have much daylight, you got the gray skies, cold weather, but the cost of the trip is so much lower. River cruise, I've never done a river cruise. I feel unqualified to speak about them. I know a lot of people go on river cruises and absolutely love them. There have been some disappointments with river cruises of late, because of low water flow in a lot of riverways, and you end up on a bus, uh, you know the the river cruise is shortened, and your river cruise actually is a traditional forty six passenger bus for a lot of the trip if the water levels are too low. So pay close attention to that before you book one. Now your core question: This is what I do. You have twenty four hours. From when you see a bargain airfare to shop the other elements. So when there's a great deal on airfare, that's my trigger. So I'll book an airfare. This actually happened where we booked an airfare to Hawaii, and then I started looking at what the accommodations costs were for the travel period of the ticket I booked, and I canceled free of any cost. You know, got you know just canceled my ticket. I didn't even make it 12 hours. I canceled that ticket. So I start, because airfare is such a big chunk of the cost of a trip. I start when a bargain airfare pops up, book it. Then I have my shopping window that I've got to be all over to see what that total cost that trip is going to be. And then I do the go or no-go
1: at that moment. I've seen you do that so many times. Okay, and Jamie in Illinois says, Clark loves to travel, but I rarely hear Clark mention what he enjoys doing while on his travels. Does he go to museums, tourist activities, excursions? What does he and his family enjoy? And how does he find the best deals on those activities?
0: I never buy a tour anywhere we go. I wander, ride the subway, ride the buses, do whatever, get around on foot. My wife loves going to museums. So what we do is I escort her to the museum and leave her there. I go wandering in the area where the museum is. And just, I love street life. I love exploring neighborhoods. I get off the main road and go on side streets wherever I am. And I absorb the local culture is what I truly enjoy. Then she'll text me when she's finishing. I go back and get her at the museum. We go do wander wherever else and go wherever else. Um, About
1: cruise excursions?
0: Oh, never do a cruise excursion.
1: Do your family ever? Do they? Ever, no, well,
0: if I ever, uh, in the past, if we ever bought an excursion, we bought it third party. Mm-hmm. Not from the cruise line itself. But usually we've done enough of that that we, we don't buy an excursion. We just go do our own thing wherever we go. It's interesting. He brought up the cruise angle, but I think about my travel to wherever, like we may go to a country, like we had the privilege recently of going back to Australia for another visit. So I ran into a high school classmate wow. in Sydney while we were there. Sorry. They were talking about, you know, how I planned the trip and I said, we didn't, we just, Yeah, we're just doing whatever, because for me, it's all the randomized kind of things that happen on a trip rather than any kind of planned tour, anything like that.
1: So I'll say one of the things I do, if you do like to plan activities on a trip, I love the Airbnb excursions, experiences, it's called, tab Um, where you can find a lot of different local things to do. And, of course, I check all the reviews. You look for, you know, experiences that have a lot of reviews. You know, Viator is the big one owned by, is it TripAdvisor? Um, That's a big tour website as well. I've had some good experiences with those. But on Airbnb, um, we actually are doing a staff trip to Rome, upcoming staff trip to Rome, and I was looking for an activity, and I found a wonderful, it looks wonderful, wonderfully reviewed activity out in the countryside, learning to cook and make Ravioli. And I was able to get a group discount with the lady, just talking back and forth with her, very personalized and saved us some money that way. And I'm really excited about it. So I love doing that. That's just a tip from me.
0: So I got to tell something about our staff trip. So we go once a year, wherever. And I remember we had a newer employee when we were in a staff meeting, they piped up and they said, well, when is this trip and where are you going? And people just started laughing. Because our deal is, and we're moving a lot of people to wherever, is it's just whatever deal pops up to wherever in the world, whatever date, and that's where we go. That's why last year we went to Thailand and Singapore, because that's where the sale was. I mean, it's just wherever the bargain is, whenever it is. So Italy popped up on sale at an incredibly great price, and that's why we're going there.
1: All right, let's squeeze in this one from Samuel in Georgia. My employer matches 25% of all my 401k contributions up to the limit. I currently contribute 5% to my Roth 401k, max out my Roth IRA, and max out my HSA. I've been thinking it might be more advantageous to ax the Roth IRA contribution and only contribute to the Roth 401k with the 25% match and max out the HSA. I can't afford to completely max out the 401k and IRA, but I figured I could take advantage of getting more match rather than max out the IRA. The only downside I see is there's only about 15 funds to invest in with my employer's 401k. Overall, I invest around $1,220 a month currently, and I max out my Roth and HSA Any thoughts on switching to only 401k and HSA contributions?
0: First of all, Samuel, I got to tell you how fantastic it is that you're so dedicated to saving money like you are. And yes, what you're considering doing is the smart move. You want to pick up as many dollars of free cash that employer matches you can. Now, you talked about the limit in funds in the 401k. It's also possible The 401k provider your employer uses is a more expensive administrator than maybe you have your IRA with. Still worth it for you to move your contributions from the Roth IRA to the Roth 401k because the value of that employer match that's all the way up to the limit is so valuable in terms of additional money that is invested in your future. What you're thinking of doing is the right strategy, the right move. And again, congratulations to you on knowing the wisdom of funding an HSA. I hope you're investing that money and also saving for your future like you are, the money you're putting aside to create long-term financial security and, dare I say, eventually financial independence, F-I, financial independence. Uh, Coming up ahead, how Visa is trying to make sure you have no money. I'm going to tell you all about that. So Visa is looking for every possible way to get in your wallet. And that's the business they're in. Visa, MasterCard, Cartel, we have the highest merchant rates in the world. So there's enormous incentive for Visa to create new product extensions to get stuff in your hands that they'll then collect merchant fees from, including the vanilla product, which we've had complaints from consumers about before. Now is much in the news because of a class action lawsuit against Visa over vanilla. What is vanilla? Vanilla is a card that's like a gift card that Visa heavily markets. With it, you go into a retailer And you know how they'll have those gift card racks? Well, Visa sells these things, and the allegation of the lawsuits, it's pretty clear if you see these displays in the stores, or that they're selling these carelessly without any good security in place. Criminals will go into a store, a drug store, discount store, whatever, they'll grab a stack of the vanilla cards, they leave the store, they open them up, they scrape off and find the uh, the pen for them. They've got the number there, and then they paint them back, package them back, take them back in the store. And employers give these things to employees—hundred bucks, five hundred bucks, whatever. And at Christmas time or bonus, you know, whatever, an employer will give you one, and you go to use it, and there's no money on it. The criminal element has completely figured this out. And Visa's just a shrug of the shoulders, and that's why there's the class action lawsuit, because Visa's like, yeah, so you lost all those thousands of dollars. <laughs> Yo, have a great day. The reality is that the security is so lame for gift cards generally, and then you start looking at the higher dollar numbers that people are putting on these gift cards with the Visa logo on them. They can have American Express logo. Haven't seen any with MasterCard, but they probably exist. And so you go in somewhere, when you see a gift card of any kind on a display rack that is out in the open, know that this same method of operation criminals can use to empty that card. So here's how it plays. Remember, the criminal took the cards, got the key information on them, Recorded all that, they may be using a software program that repeatedly checks to see when the card becomes active. Remember, they put them back on the shelf, they get purchased, they're activated, and then they're instantly emptied because the criminal is running the software that finds when they're active. They immediately use them to buy stuff, bam, it's over. And remember, these cards aren't assigned to an individual. They're just generic. Anybody can use them. And the criminals are helping themselves to a feast on other people's money. So until and unless the industry decides that it actually matters to have some form of proper security on gift cards that are out on display racks, do not buy them. And Visa, come on. Come on. These vulnerabilities have been known for a good while. Why aren't you doing anything about it? Why are you being so cynical and disrespectful about other people's money? And by the way, as always, if the Visa cartel, well, half of the Visa MasterCard cartel, if Visa, would like to have a spokesperson come on and explain why I'm unfair, thick-headed, or just plain wrong, you're welcome to do so.
1: Jonathan in Nevada says, my parents are in their 70s and are struggling financially. They want to get involved in options trading and are encouraging my children and I to participate. They are using this website named Clark as their training and investing tool. How safe is options trading and what should I warn them about? Is there a better way for them to earn money in retirement?
0: Jonathan, this is one of those things where you're, Parents face a financial crisis, and they're looking for the quick fix, the quick hit. And what you're doing with options trading is you're magnifying your gains or your losses. And options trading is something that the promoters that pitch it are like, this is a can't lose thing. You either let the options expire because they didn't make money for you, Or you exercise them at this tremendous magnification. So instead of if a stock goes up 10%, you could be getting 500% return on your money. But the reality is, there's no free lunch here. And options trading is a very quick way to lose money because most options will expire worthless. You paid for those options and the math is like going to the track and betting on a horse who's the longest odds and saying, well, I only lost the cost of the ticket. But I mean, if the horse wins, I'm getting, you know, 100 to one or whatever. It is not sound basic financing and investing. And I don't recommend options trading, particularly high leverage options trading.
1: Tim in Wisconsin says at the conclusion of a divorce and with a house that is locked into a 4.125% rate, are there ways to buy out a spouse of a home using its existing equity rather than purchasing an entirely new home and paying rates upwards of 6.5%? I don't have all the cash to make the spread between its equity and what it could sell for. I've looked into HELOCs a little as well as HEIs and in wondering if there's a good path that doesn't rely on a refinance for reference, the outstanding debt in the house is 415,000. It would likely sell for the mid seven hundreds.
0: So Tim, we get into an area that gets really uh, so much about humanity and what is the nature of the, divorcing situation you're in because the person who's staying in the house, you benefit from keeping that four and an eighth percent mortgage in place, obviously, because if you go to refi, you're going to be paying upper sixes, maybe as much as over 7% to refi it. So you'll lose all the benefit of the 4% rate on 400 and something thousand, and it'll go all the way back from zero dollars up you'll be at upper sixes or seven. So the way that you can make this work for you that may or may not work for your estranged spouse is if the estranged spouse really trusts you, you're going to pay your bills and all that, the first mortgage stays in place and the estranged spouse issues you a second mortgage against the property that would carry a high rate And they're getting that payment from you every month. And they have a share of the original equity. Now, there are many, many ways to do this. And I'm not going to tell you any one formula. I'm talking in generalities. Because this is something that what you do is you go talk with a mortgage broker or banker who knows the ways of the market and the lawyer who you're using representing you in the divorce, ask what kind of ways people have handled this in the past. Couples are trying to make this work because it can help fund the cost of divorce for both parties in the divorce when you're able to preserve the very favorable terms of the existing loan. But truth be told, your estranged spouse faces great risk leaving that original first mortgage in place. Because if you don't pay or you go delinquent on the loan, who also went delinquent on the loan? You're a strange spouse. So this is something that can get very messy. It all depends on the dynamics of what's going on as the marriage moves apart, what is feasible and what's possible. And again, I'm not a lawyer, That's why you need a lawyer involved. You also need the wisdom of an experienced mortgage broker who's seen this, done that, and has suggestions that would be helpful.
1: Stephen Florida says, What nation and currency would be a safe alternative to the U.S. dollar in the event of U.S. financial collapse because of the debt crisis? (sighs) So
0: we're the only reserve currency in the world, uh, and everything else is influenced by the dollar at this point. The path we're on with our budget deficits, not sustainable at all. And in the circus that's Washington, nobody from either party, other than a very small number of members of uh, both parties who are just crying in the wilderness, are focusing on the danger to our nation's health and security from running these unconscionable budget deficits. And nobody's telling your fellow American the truth about the consequences of wanting all the candy from the government without paying for that candy. So this is something that's been a frustration of mine for a long, long time. And it's hard to believe that 25 years ago, the problem for the United States was we were running such budget surpluses that we didn't know how we were going to handle paying off the remainder of the national debt while we've gone in reverse on this. So it is reversible getting back on a sustainable path, but we need politicians with guts who will speak to the American people honestly, and that's not been happening. Is the U.S. dollar going to collapse? generally not likely even with a debt crisis. What happens is the relevance of the U.S. dollar versus other currencies in the world, the relative position of the U.S. dollar will move from a position of strength to weakness. It will not likely collapse. But if you do want to hedge against that, you can buy any of a number of exchange traded funds that hold a concentration in single currencies, which I don't like, or a market basket of currencies, not including the U.S. dollar, exchange-traded funds. That is the most efficient way for you to hold positions in currencies of countries that you trust more, that you have more confidence in, the long-term viability and strength of their money. My hope is that before we run aground in the United States, That we will sail a new course. I am an incurable optimist, but I will tell you, I am frustrated about the lack of maturity in our politicians and really in us collectively as Americans that we don't wanna face the music, that we have to pay for the services and the transfer payments that we are getting from the federal government that we're not paying for now. That's just a fact. And that's not a very happy way to end this podcast. So remember what we're about. Our orbit is very different. We're about you learning ways to save more, spend less. Lessons would be very useful to the government. And avoid getting ripped off. Have a wonderful day.